Coming up on Tech Nation, the biotech companies meet back in person for the first time in three years. At the Bio International Convention in San Diego, we were able to speak with Paul Hastings, the chair of Bio and the president and CEO of Encarta, working on delivering natural killer cells for cancer. We also spoke with Joe Panetta, president and CEO of Biocom California, about the price of drugs. And Dr. Richard Austin from Reglagene, he told us about their work in brain cancer, while Dr. Chris Nave from Polyactiva tells us about their work in treating glaucoma. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2016, I was able to speak with Florida State psychology professor Anders Ericsson about the book Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. Remember the 10,000-hour rule? Well, we've all heard about the famous 10,000-hour rule popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers, and 10,000 being the number of hours it purportedly takes to master a field of expertise, and now that's come into a lot of question. Well, how did you figure into all that? Well, he was citing a study that we conducted with violinists at an international music academy in Berlin, and we identified those that were the best students in that academy who had the prospect of becoming international soloists. And then we basically asked the question here, you know, is the practice history of these individuals different? And I think it's kind of important to point out that when you're studying music, you do it under the instruction of a teacher. And that teacher kind of on a weekly basis assesses you and then asks the question here, what are the things that would be the most productive to work on during the week? where the students put in you know, 25 to 30 hours of actually training themselves to make those kinds of adjustments. Then they come back to the teacher, and actually then he either points out some remaining problems or you know, kind of identifies an other aspect that can be improved. So we kind of asked these uh, violinists and, and some less high-performing violinists about how much time they actually had spent working with teachers and studying by themselves. And what we found was that if we added up all the hours that they had done until age 20, the very elite group had done on an average uh, 10,000 hours. So that was kind of an average, but it was basically a lot of variability around that average, but it was statistically more than the less performing groups, which I, I guess at the time was viewed as kind of significant here that even at the top, when you're actually looking at the very best violinist in Germany, you can actually see here that their practice history is at least correlated with their attained achievement at age 20. So at the very least, he should have probably called it the 10,000-hour young violinist practice role. Right. And, and, And I guess he talks about practice in a way that I think is different from our deliberate practice idea that you're really now working on trying to change yourself. Uh, So he kind of included the time that the Beatles were just performing in front of audiences in Hamburg as practice. 
Now, I would argue that that you know, wouldn't be meeting the criteria that we have for deliberate practice. And also, it's not clear that even if they did get better as a band, I would argue that the Beatles, what you really need to be able to explain is the kind of music that they composed that really changed kind of music history. And it wasn't really as performers that the Beatles excelled. It's not like they were playing other people's music better than the people who composed it. Well, you quote Dogbert, the dog and the Dilbert comic strip. He says, I would think a willingness to practice the same thing for 10,000 hours is a mental disorder. <laughs> I have to agree. <laughs> right. And, and, and I think that gets at this issue here that if you're just kind of practicing the same thing over and over, I would say you're not engaging in deliberate practice because deliberate practice, you have a goal and you actually stretch towards that goal. Once that goal is achieved, you're now picking another aspect that you're going to be working on. Clearly a creative ability here to kind of find new ways uh, to perform music that when, once you do it in front of audiences, you know, they're really amazed. Professor Erickson passed away in 2020, although his scientific research continues to live on. His 2016 book, Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise, is available in paperback. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, the biotech companies meet back in person for the first time in three years at the Bio Convention in San Diego. We're all caught up, and now you will be too. We speak with Paul Hastings, the chair of Bio and the president and CEO of Encarta, about their work delivering natural killer cells for cancer. We speak with Joe Panetta, president and CEO of Biocom California about biotech in the state of California and the price of drugs. We speak with Dr. Richard Austin from Reglagene about their work with the brain cancer glioblastoma and with Dr. Chris Nave from Polyactiva developing a glaucoma treatment only needed every six months. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Paul Hastings. Paul, welcome back to Biotech Nation. Thanks, Moira. It's great to be here. Now, Paul, uh, I'm going to start with your position as chair of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, which is huge international organization tying all of our, you know, big endeavors together. Uh, tell people what that means, and I've got to ask you, where are we now that, now that we? I want to say we fought the fight on COVID. We're still going on that, but we brought vaccines, testing, everything else. Uh, where are we now? Where is the industry? Right. Well, right now we're with fourteen thousand five hundred of our best friends right here at <laughs> in this San Diego. In, in San Diego at this convention center. And you know why? Because of our industry, right? So we're all here because the biopharmaceutical industry 
was called to action and, and did the work it took to not cure yet, because this COVID is ongoing, but to put a control with vaccines and therapeutics on COVID. That's why we're here. That's why 14,500 people are together, because this industry worked with people that needed us to move quickly, and we, and we did it in less than a year. And, and how is that possible? We hear how long it takes to develop all of these things. Well, so the, the laboratory in China gave the sequence of the virus to the team at Moderna. So they didn't even have the virus. They had a sequence of the virus. And they came up with a vaccine in record time with that, along with the many other companies, Pfizer, Merck, you know. Hundreds of hundreds companies. Hundreds of companies came to action on this issue. And so I think what it shows is when it needs to be done, and everyone in the world is focusing on this, it can get done. And it did get done. It took a massive effort. People dropped what they were doing, and they did it. And I think people need to remember that. This industry saved the world from COVID. Now, I have to ask you, so many people pivoted. Uh, they dropped what they were doing. They took all of their expertise, their people, their resources, already in a very expensive to develop mm -hmm. industry. Um, and nobody was paying them. Nobody was giving them money to work on this. So they, they did that. And now we're still working on that, but we're not at the level of the pandemic call of how are we going to deal with this? Yeah. Now we are back to many of those companies can get back to normal, their normal business. What is the new normal? Well, the new normal is curing cancer and other auto-inflammatory diseases and other rare disorders and helping patients um, have a better quality of life. That's what we do for a living. And that's a wonderful thing to be doing for a living. And that's what we're back to doing. We did it during COVID, drop what we're doing, as you said, uh, but we did it because patients needed it, not just patients with severe illness, but everybody in the world could get sick with COVID and die. Right. So that was a call to action that was necessary to follow. But we do that every day. So that's what we're doing now. So go going back to what we do normally is a relatively easy thing to do because we know what we need to do. We know the discoveries we need to make. We know the clinical trials we need to get these agents approved. We're now focusing on doing cool things like making sure that people of all diverse representations are able to get access to our clinical trials. That's a big issue, right? So we're doing more and more of that uh, and uh, focusing on getting breakthrough therapies to patients as quickly as possible. Since, since we saw how fast it could happen with COVID, why can't you do that with a cell therapy? And we can. So I think that's really important. And so it's going to be important to keep the policies that are going on in Washington instead of having someone come out and say, well, we should have more randomized clinical trials and not have accelerated approval. How about let's continue to get these accelerated approvals, let's continue to, to, um, to approve these agents quickly and require companies who then need to follow up to have the follow-on studies that are necessary, you know, to validate what they just did. So that all needs to keep going and that's what we're doing. So different mindset. It used to be go through all of these trials, make sure it's safe, make sure it does what it's doing. And then once it's out on the market, well, we don't know what happens to it. You're saying let's accelerate this, but then let's keep tracing it? Yes. that's what, When you get an accelerated approval, you must follow up with studies uh, that, are, that, um, that are in larger populations of people to be able to validate the fact that what you did in a small number of patients is real. So it's not new, actually. It's something that 
accelerated approval has been doing this since HIV in the 80s, right? So, um, but, but what's interesting is the world is going back to that make sure, and by the way, the first thing you do is make sure a drug is safe. That, Period. You always yeah. have to do that. But make sure it's safe. Make sure it's effective. Oh, by the way, instead of seeing a spectacular result, approving it and then asking for the follow-up data, you know, it's, we're, we're now getting back to this sort of, well, let's do these large randomized clinical trials, which are hard to enroll, expensive. And so we need to remind people that accelerated approval is a good thing for patients. It's a good thing for science. And we need to stay on the path of accelerated approval. Some of the issues that came up with the Alzheimer's drugs got in the way of accelerated approval, right? Because people looked at that and applied that to all the other different disease areas, and we shouldn't do that. With accelerated approval, is it possible that it will be less expensive to develop drugs? Ultimately, it could be, yes. But you still have to do that follow-up, and that follow-up's expensive too, right? So there's, there's really no way to get out of expense when you're developing drugs, right? It's, it costs money to develop drugs. It's costly. Where's the money going to come from? Well, right now, the money for our industry is coming from these specialist investors that invest in, particularly in healthcare and biotech. And the generalists, and you mentioned them before, the generalists, by the way, did come in when we were developing COVID vaccines. They were like, wow, look at what they're doing. This is a worldwide problem. Let's invest in these companies, right? And now that we developed the COVID vaccines, they're now on to the next thing, whatever the next thing is. Maybe it's toys, energy or whatever, right? <laughs> <Maybe> it's so, energy. <laughs> so what, they, what those generalists, and so when the generalists come in, the markets tend to move quickly and um, robustly and people get access to capital. When generalists exit, you lose access to capital. And then those biotech specialist investors are left there holding the bag. They have to do it all. And they don't have enough capital to fund the entire industry because there are thousands of companies now that were started because of the fuel that was created from the COVID era, right? So, so now we need to make those, those generalists, my message to those generalists is, you know, we're still amending and we're still improving vaccines and therapeutics for COVID because COVID has not gone away. Let's not forget that. We didn't, we solved COVID, but we didn't eradicate it. It's still hanging out in the hallways of this convention center and could hit anybody with a mutation that if you don't have the right um, antibody or the right vaccine to treat it, could still kill you. So we have to make sure that we're ahead of that curve. So I think if the generalists that left because we already solved COVID realized that COVID is an ongoing thing and the only industry that can solve it is this one, then they would stay in this industry. And I think that will happen. I always like to quote Peter Schultz of the Global Business Network. He said, never forget, 95% of all the scientists who have ever lived are alive today. 95% of all the engineers who have ever lived are alive today. All of the scientists that want to work on moving all of our medical needs forward, meeting all of those, all the engineers who want to meet them too, in the diagnostics field. They, they need each other. They all need each other, whether it's in development or, or production or operation. They need to be able to work and they need funding. And the more that are funded, the more is possible. Right. And uh, Absolutely. Now I want to talk about your company, Encarta. For people who don't know the name, it's Big N, little K-A-R-T-A, Encarta. What does it mean? And tell us what you're doing. And Encarta, N-K, means natural killer cells. Now, natural killer cells sounds bad, right? But natural killer cells kill tumors. And so your body makes natural killer cells. And what we do 
is we engineer them. We take them and we can, we can take natural killer cells from a healthy donor and we can engineer them and we can give them to you. So we don't have to take the cell from you and then engineer it and give it back to you. Well, that takes a lot of time and effort. We can have off-the-shelf NK cells by working with healthy donors and getting their NK cells, engineering them, expanding them, and putting them in a vial so that, and freezing that vial so we can put it on the shelf so that when you uh, uh, approach a medical center with acute myeloid leukemia, when this drug is on the market, they will be able to go to the shelf, thaw that vial, and give it to you immediately. So there's no waiting time at all. So that's what we're doing. We're developing, discovering, developing targeted natural killer cells, allogeneic and off the shelf, meaning it's coming from somebody else. It's not coming directly from you. And it's, a, it's like giving a vial of drug. There's no difference for the patient whether where the cells came from because they're able to get that vial right when they need it. Now, you're not just working on AML. That's right. What else are you working on? Well, we're working on hematologic malignancies, which are blood cancers, right? Leukemias and lymphomas. And then we're working on solid tumors, right? So, so other types of cancer, colorectal cancer isolated in the liver or hepatocellular or liver cancer. We're looking at other forms of solid tumors because NK cells attract themselves. They become attracted to tumor cells. So they go right for the tumor cells, whether they be, so the, so the, the, the ligands of NK cells um, are, are on the surface of small uh, um, solid tumors as well as uh, blood cancers. And so our NK cells will be attracted to those. So we target them with a target that will help get it to that tumor and eradicate that tumor. Well, the only thing I'm confused about is you don't look like a natural killer. <laughs> I'm the chief natural killer, right? So, <laughs> no, it's, it's a, you know, I think the, when killer is a nice word is when you talk about killer in regards to cancer. If you can kill a cancer cell, if you can kill a tumor, that's a really good thing. Well, Paul, always a pleasure. You're always welcome on Biotech Nation. Thanks, Thank thanks you, for coming Mara. in. Thank you very much. Paul Hastings is the chair of BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, and the president and CEO of Encarta. More information is available at EncartaTX.com. That's Encarta, N-K-A-R-T-A, EncartaTX.com. California has many biotech hubs, from San Francisco in the north to San Diego and Los Angeles in the south. With Bio 2022 being held in San Diego, Joe Panetta, the president and CEO of Biocom California, just might be the best person to describe its capabilities. Joe, welcome back to Biotech Nation. Thanks, Maura. I'm just so happy to see you face-to-face, -face, really not on a <laughs> computer screen, but in person. So, it's awesome. I know. It, it is great. It is absolutely great. Now, uh, originally when I first met you, Biocom was basically sort of San Diego Biotech, and then and it was L.A. Biotech, and now you're Biocom California and beyond. Tell people where where you are sort of looking over, if you will, or bringing together, I guess is a better description, and uh and we're beyond California 
and why? Yeah, that's the biggest thing I think that's happened since the last time we got together just in terms of uh, Biocom to Biocom California. You know, as the San Diego life science community grew and uh, and evolved into a life science community that had connections in places like L.A. and San Francisco and in other parts of the world, we realized that we couldn't simply exist as Biocom San Diego, that we needed to make sure that we were not only a part of that, but that we were catalyzing it and accelerating it. So um, that was a big part of our decision to first open an office in L.A., uh, because L.A. is, um, most people don't realize that while L.A. is is not next door to San Diego, it's fairly close to San Diego. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to work with folks up in L.A. And then the fact that a lot of our companies were beginning to establish sites in San Francisco uh, or companies up in San Francisco, vice versa, were beginning to do things down here. Um, and we also knew that... Um, San Diego needed connections around the world, too. And, you know, one of the challenges in San Diego biotech has always been that San Diego uh, is a wonderful place to live. But uh, most of us who live in San Diego uh, don't have the opportunity to have the kinds of international connections that L.A. and San Francisco does. And, uh, so we decided that uh, it would be important to expand to some of the most important uh, global life science centers as well. So began to do a, a lot more in Japan. And then as we expanded and opened our offices in L.A., uh, and I have to talk about L.A. because uh, L.A. was uh, sort of a, a, a hidden secret when it came to biotech. It was supposed to be movies. It was supposed to be movies. And I didn't even realize that the movie industry is just a very, very small part of the overall L.A. economy. Uh, and so um, the biotech industry up in L.A. brings in more NIH research funding than we do here down in San Diego, the biomedical research universities primarily. Uh, and we were beginning to see some successful startups like Kite Pharmaceuticals that was eventually acquired by Gilead. So um, we decided we would try to take what we do down here, which is to network people and to help them to raise capital and grow their workforce uh, and to do that up in LA as well. One thing led to the next, and um, we were asked to do the same thing by uh, some of the biotech companies up in San Francisco. And so uh, we opened an office there, and um, now we have this great network <clears throat> that uh, brings people together in biotech across all of California. And it should, because, you know, California is, a, is an enormous economy that should be working together across the different clusters and so we and we really here important. being here we're all part of the same team we that's all feel exactly. that way it's yeah. sort of a natural progression yeah and and down here you know i i would hear often well uh they're san francisco and we're san diego and they're their own culture and we're our own culture down here uh, but we really are one one state and um, and we need to have connections to places like japan uh, and you know we've also expanded to have relationships in some of the biotech clusters in europe like uh the the, the one around uh, another one that's a great secret the one around marseille in, in france that also has a basis in biomedical research at the university there uh, and 
in Cambridge in the UK and uh, in Tokyo and uh, just got back from South Korea a couple of weeks ago and just great stuff happening over there that they want to bring here to California. Well, I think what's so important is to understand that that science is not isolating. This is science business. And we are all kind of working together. People think competitive. It's like, boy, we all need each other. We're working on different aspects. We're seeing all these things develop. We're learning from each other. I mean, it's pretty, I think it's revolutionary in the way all of these businesses have to work together. All this science within the businesses has to work together. And and then to be able to bring it together under something like a Biocom California. Yeah. And, you know, um, most of the drugs that are approved by FDA these days come out of biotech companies. They don't come out of big pharma. And, and so big pharma has an enormous invested interest in working with uh, the science that uh, the biotech companies are, are developing. So that's become a big part of what we do, too. Uh, each year we bring together all the big pharmas and all the big biotechs here in San Diego. And uh, we give them the opportunity to meet all of the small companies and uh, two days of all kinds of great partnering meetings and potentially deals that are going to be getting done. And uh, so it's it's a, it's a, an, an ecosystem that, as you say, it just kind of crosses uh, every, every aspect of, of the industry and not just here in California, but in other parts of the world too. The innovation and the creativity that is needed is such that, well, for research and development, big pharmaceutical companies, they must do their own. It's been a good 10, 15 years since they did their own. They do a little bit. They do mostly development as it goes later in stages of delivery. But they're looking to all the creativity of many, all the tiny biotechs, the mid-biotechs, the people, how far can you take it now? Now we're interested. So this is where all that unbelievable innovation comes from. It, it is. And, and it's especially important, I think, that we're here in San Diego, because I think San Diego is a classic example of how big pharma and big biotech sees the importance of working with small biotech companies. You know, when I came here to San Diego, which was over 30 years ago, uh, we did have a pharma company with a presence here, and that was Johnson & Johnson that took the initiative to come to this fledgling biotech cluster to establish a research site. Uh, but it wasn't until about uh, 1999 uh, that uh, we saw the uh, acquisition of Agaron by Pfizer that Pfizer decided, gee, maybe we should actually build a research facility in, in San Diego because this Virocept molecule that is one of the most successful drugs to treat HIV and AIDS could potentially lead us to other opportunities in San Diego. And that Golly, led, uh, look at yeah. you say San Diego. Golly, yeah. look at scripts. Right. Look at this like there's a whole lot of educated people working, working, working. Right. And, this, I, and yeah. I could give you a whole list. You know, we had a fledgling company called Sibia that was working on neurodegenerative diseases that was acquired by Merck and it gave Merck a presence here. Uh, Eli Lilly uh, acquired one of our early stage companies and now has an enormous presence here. Uh, Celgene, which back then was still kind of, a, uh, I'd say maybe a mid-stage biotech company, uh, acquired a company called Signal. And so uh, today... We've got this great example of how, while we don't have pharma headquarters per se here in San Diego, all of the major pharmas know that if they want to be close to what's going on in innovative science, they need to have a facility here in San Diego. Now I'm going to ask you a question that I hope you can answer 
but it's completely different than what we've been talking about. Joe, why do drugs cost so much? I'm going to answer that first in, in terms of what is the value that some of these innovative drugs bring? I've been speaking with Joe Panetta, president and CEO of Biocom California. We'll talk more after a break. The Biotech Nation podcast can be found individually at biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of whole Tech Nation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, we hear from Dr. Richard Austin of Reglagene about their efforts to develop a treatment for the brain cancer glioblastoma. And Dr. Chris Nave, chair of Polyactiva, describes their work to deliver a glaucoma treatment only needed every six months. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Joe Panetta, the president and CEO of Biocom California, about the price of drugs. We had a product developed here by a company called Amelin uh, that was focused on um, diabetes, a product called Bietta that um, modulated some of the enzymes in, uh, in diabetic uh, treatment and basically allowed people's glucose levels to stay pretty stable through, throughout the day. Um, that, that product in terms of the, uh, the, save, the cost savings to the healthcare system uh, was an enormous game changer. That's the first way that I'd answer the question. But the second way is that um, I, I think that when um, people go to the pharmacy and to pay for a bottle of pills, um, they have no idea what it's taken in terms of the years of research and the trial and error, the failures that uh, have all gone into eventually getting to the point where you've got a successful therapy. And the price of drugs is, uh, is it's, a, it's a complex equation that people sometimes think is just a matter of a drug company selling to a, a 
pharmaceutical distribution company like a Walgreens or a CVS, and uh, and then it gets sold to the patient. But there there are a lot of other moving parts, right? There are the there are a, a group of pharmacy benefit managers that decide what kinds of discounts they're gonna they're gonna uh, apply, what what kind what they're gonna pay for a certain volume of drugs. Uh, they they get a piece of the pie as well. Of course, there are the insurance companies that uh, decide on what a, what a drug is worth and how much they're going to reimburse versus how much is going to come out of your own pocket to, to, to pay for a drug. Um, in fact, I just had some uh, uh, cataract surgery, and uh, some of the drops that I had to take were covered by my insurance. And so it was about $10, I think, at copay. But there was one uh, that was uh, a uh, an anti-inflammatory, and I went to pick it up at the pharmacy, and the pharmacist said, that'll be $250. And I said, $250? <laughs> and my first reaction was, do I really need this for $250? Yeah. Uh, and he said, it's not covered by your insurance company, right? So I think those are some of the challenges that we have to take take into account when we talk about drug pricing. Well, this this is a conversation that could go on all day and all night. So we're just going to leave it there. <laughs> and I love the I love how you describe. Well, we're down in San Diego, you know, San Francisco and Los Angeles have international ties. I got to say, you got it going when you say, "Would you come to our conference? It's in San Diego." It's like, you betcha. <laughs> Everybody wants to be here. And look, you know, the other cool thing that's happened is now we actually do have a lot of international flights. So uh, it, it is a lot easier to get here. Well, Joe, you're always welcome in Biotech Nation. I hope you come back. See you again. Thanks, Moira. Glad, glad you're down here with us all. And uh, I, I hope uh, you get a chance to enjoy San Diego a little bit, too. Joe Panetta is the president and CEO of Biocom California. More information is available at biocom.org. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Reglagene is a Tucson, Arizona-based company which is focused on developing a treatment for the brain cancer glioblastoma. Today, Reglagene is choosing which of its drug candidates it will bring forward to test on humans. In the industry, this is called the bake-off or the beauty contest. Which molecule will be selected? Which molecule has the best chance to succeed in human clinical trials? Dr. Richard Austin is the founder and CEO of Reglagene. Well, Dr. Austin, welcome to Biotech Nation. Maura, I am delighted to be here. This is a real treat. Now, we often think about uh, drugs. We hear about how the drugs are going through these trials, they're being tested, and they say, is the drug going to work or not? And we always, it starts with the drug is a molecule, we often say. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, it's like, gee, this company did all this work and they have one molecule. They don't actually just have one molecule, do they? No, they don't. It's a process where you typically make hundreds, sometimes even thousands of molecules. For Reglagene, a little company like ours, we made over 600 drug prototypes to get down to just the handful we have left that are competing to be that clinical candidate that we move forward and test it in people. Well, we're going to talk about that. And I'll tell you, it's just called a beauty contest to pick it out. It's called a bake-off. It's <laughs> called all of that because that's what it is. You're comparing. You realize, like, which one is it going to be? That's correct. We're going to get to that. But let's start with what that molecule you're going to pick. What are you trying to do here? Reglagene is trying to come up with a breakthrough therapy 
for the way that we treat brain cancers. There has been just a limited amount of innovation and change in the way that we treat brain tumors. If you think about glioblastoma, the deadliest brain cancer, the standard of care drug was approved by the FDA in 1999. It offers patients an extra 2.5 months of survival and comes with severe toxicity. We need to do better for these patients. And even beyond that kind of brain cancer, breast cancer, and lung cancer, these are the two cancers that metastasize most frequently into the brain. And unless patients have a special genetic makeup related to their tumor, there's no therapies out there for them that are effective. We have got to do better for these patients. Okay, so you're going after brain cancer. So that means whatever you're building has to be able to get through that barrier and into the brain. That is exactly right. Every one of us comes equipped with what is known as a blood-brain barrier. It's essentially a filter that keeps toxins from going into our brains. It protects our brains. But in the case of cancer patients, it also prevents what would otherwise be effective therapies from being able to access a brain tumor. Do you mean the molecules are just too big? Uh, the molecules can be too big. There are there are uh, these little molecular structures known as efflux pumps that are there just to grab molecules that don't belong and pump them right back out of the brain. in general, your medicine should not be there. Should not be there. So it's a special molecule, special molecules that are able to actually cross that blood-brain barrier and get into the brain. Now, part of that is building a molecule that can get past that barrier, uh, are you also building what's going to happen once you get in? We are building what should happen once it gets in because it's not just being able to get in, it's being able to hit the right target in the brain to actually do something about the uh, cancer. And so we are going after a classic cancer target, very famous. It's a protein called tubulin. And that protein is 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 one of the key players in cell division how cells uh, divide and uh, become and become daughter cells the uh, hallmark of cancer of course is rapid cell division and so it's not surprising that if you can block the action of this tubulin protein and its role in this cell division process you're well on your way to a cancer medicine the, uh, uh, there has been millions of lives saved by the FDA approved therapies that target this same protein but none of these other drugs get into the brain, and that's where we want to make a difference. So if you're like everybody else, and I think you are, you've done all of these animal studies. And, of course, now you're going to go into the phase one first in human studies. So we were all set to do that, but you have over 600 molecules. The FDA said, okay, give us one. You get to do one. Which one do you want to do? So how do you figure that out? And we use the animal models to decide. We, we have these over 600. We've been able to narrow it down on pre-animal models, if I could call it that, to about half, half a dozen. Um, and then what we do is we go into the animals because that's where you really know if you have something that has the potential to be a drug. The industry is moving away from testing with animal models, but we're really not as smart as we think we are just yet. And so we still use these animal models to make sure that uh, the drugs that we're bringing forward 
work in the way that we think we do and are safe enough that whenever it becomes time for that phase one human clinical trial, that we can treat those patients, test this, this drug in those patients safely. So now we're talking about the beauty contest or the bake-off. you got your six molecules lined up here, mm-hmm. and you've got six groups of animals. Yes. All identical. Yes, well, as much as animals can be, be identical. identical. Exactly right. <laughs> That's true. I don't know why I was thinking of teenage boys there. But <laughs> take all the teenage animals yes. out. Yes. <laughs> no. um, and, uh, and what will you put them through? You, each one of them will have exactly the same protocol to you know, be administered to the animals. Right. And then what are you going to, me- well, are you going to measure? How, how does that work? It mirrors what you want to do in people. You want to be able to measure safety. You know, so if you give a molecule to an animal and it's toxic to that animal, that molecule is likely not going to be good in people. Now, animals and people have different responses to, to potential drug molecules, but, you know, you use those animal studies to help you work as a filter to to find things that are more likely to work effectively in people. So it's it's safety. It's making sure that the molecule gets to the right area of the body. So for us, brain penetration studies are huge. Actually, the rodent model is the gold standard model for predicting brain penetration in humans. So it's outstanding for us. And our molecules that we've shown, we get into the brain better than any other tubulin therapy that has come before. And so we're just really jazzed about that. And then it's an efficacy. You want to see if you're actually able to do something about a human-derived tumor in an animal. So there are uh, patients who have had cancer. We've taken samples from those tumors, and those are actually grafted onto the rodent models. We dose the model. We, we dose the animal model orally, and then you find out, does the, does the drug molecule actually get to the tumor and actually make a difference? Now, I have to say a couple of things. Number one, um, these are not in isolation. You, you said, hey, we know a lot about these rodents, these kind of tub- tumors, tubulin, mm-hmm. how that's... You're building on a whole huge area of science in which we know how things operate. Exactly. There have been many, many, many studies way outside Reglatine. Yes. That, so that if, if you can match those, both positive and negative, then you know you've got similar operations. So we right. have that. Now... The problem I have, I sort of envision we have six very fast runners. We're looking at the Olympics, mm-hmm. and they're all going to sprint around trying to get to the end first, you know, right. get to that finish line. Right. Because you know a lot about these six molecules yes. already. Yes. Now what do you do? Uh, we know a lot about these six molecules, and these animal studies will help us get down to our top two. Our rodent models will get down to our top two. We're going to have just the two molecules that are going to go head-to-head in another animal study, and this animal study is going to be even closer to what we think that human model or, or, what, or how our drugs will, will work in humans, and we will have a winner of what we like to call our bake-off or our 
beauty pageant, and we will have a runner-up. Runner <laughs> so the winner gets to wear the tiara and gets to represent all those 600 molecules that we initially started with, gets to represent them and go forward uh, to finish what is known as the investigational new drug application process and actually actually go into people and uh, have a shot to be a real drug. The runner-up is there just in case for some reason the one wearing the tiara is not able cannot to serve. fulfill. We like cannot to serve. Cannot that's serve. That's the line. And and actually, if that's the case, you've got to go back and see if if the runner up has the same problem. Exactly right. Now, the thing we have going for us is our the last two molecules standing are coming from what are known as two different chemical families. What that means is is their structures are unique from each other. So rather than looking like, uh, let's say, rather than looking like fraternal twins, they actually look very different from each other. And so we will have one molecule that looks like it looks and another molecule as the runner-up that looks very different. And so ideally, since structure leads to function, that other molecule will have slightly different properties. I mean, not fully, but certainly slightly different properties that may allow it to uh, succeed in that runner-up role and actually make it into the clinic. So the idea that, well, you have 600 molecules, they actually, they differ from each other in a number of ways. Yes. There's groups of them, different structures within them that you've been intentionally kind of cover, you know, a broad area of capability, just approach with the same idea of what you're trying to do. Exactly right. You have it. You have it. Oh, this is exciting, a beauty contest, a bake-off. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that is so funny is it doesn't matter whether you're a small startup like you guys, just really, you know, pushing ahead, or you're a great big, you know, global pharmaceutical company, you end up with a beauty contest. You, we all end up with a beauty contest. And one of the beautiful things here is we are, we are a, we are a therapeutics discovery and development company coming out of Tucson, Arizona of all places. And because the world has changed and the services that you need to help you discover and develop a drug are, are things that even we can buy from, from Tucson. You buy these services in, in the United States and all over the world. We can actually do that work without being in a great place like San Francisco or Boston or even where we are today in San Diego. And I have to tell you that uh, if you are the FDA, when you come through the door to say, we want to do this, they say, show me your molecule. That's all they care about. They don't say, well, how big are you? They say, show me your molecule. Show me what you've done. The same questions are asked it's actually pretty equal when you get to that point. It is. It is very equal when you get to that point. And the, and the questions are, they want to know, can you manufacture that molecule reliably? And that's one of the great things for us. Very simple molecules, simple manufacturing During the test processing. and trial. Yeah. Exactly right. And then, uh, and, and then the safety studies that you've done, you know, just showing that you know how to dose animals and they believe you'll know how to dose people in a way that uh, that is safe for those human subjects that you would like to test in your phase one trial. You were saying earlier, and I know we've covered this somewhat, uh, the United States is at the forefront of moving away from testing in animals. And I mean, it's very exciting work that is going on. Um, but just as we have 
a huge, many-decade you know, volume of experience in the animal models with knowledge, when we move out of them, we're kind of starting new for the body of information that is needed to not be testing in animals. I mean, that is, we have to recognize that. It's not just a not testing in animals anymore. We have to start essentially from zero to create up create a large body of science. That is absolutely true because right now the FDA requires that you have these animal studies to be able to move forward. And then whenever we are able to start to make that transition to where animal studies may not be required or may not be required to the depth that they are now, um, we will be developing new data to make sure that that what we're doing is is a is an adequate and and most importantly safe substitute for uh uh for the way that we've done this in years gone by. So I have to say also that I have seen very I haven't seen any resistance at all to this transition other than we just have more work to do. Well, we do have more work to do and I tell you <laughs> we love our animals, we love our pets, you know, and and we're all excited about the changes that are coming. So the therapeutic developers and the FDA, everyone's working together to make this happen so that when it gets into humans, it's safe. It's safe. That is the bottom line. However you get there, it's got to be safe because these therapies are needed. Okay, I have only one question left. Just like whoever wins, how big is that TRA you're putting on the winning molecule? That tiara is pretty small because you made a very good point at the very outset of the interview in that uh, these molecules have to be pretty small to get past that blood-brain barrier. That's the very first criteria. The big molecules, the monoclonal antibodies, the cell-based therapies, the RNAs, they tend not to get past the blood-brain barrier unless they get some sort of special help. So the tiara for the molecule that wins will be tiny. <laughs> you can guarantee that. I guarantee it. Well, Dr. Austin, thank you so much for coming in, and I hope you'll come back and see us again. Oh, more anytime you'll have me, I'll be right here. Dr. Richard Austin is the founder and CEO of Reglagene. More information is available at reglagene.com. That's Regla, R-E-G-L-A, Gene, G-E-N-E, Reglagene. Com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Treatments for diseases of the eye are always challenging. They may require daily pills for many years, which makes compliance difficult, or injections perhaps every one to two months. Any effort which could extend the time between treatments is welcome. Dr. Chris Nave is the managing director of Brandon Capital and the chair of Polyactiva. Polyactiva's first candidate is in the treatment of glaucoma. Well, Chris, welcome back to Biotech Nation. Thanks, Maura. Great to be here. Now, I want to talk today about an area of the body that has always been extremely difficult to treat, and that's the eye. Why is that so difficult? Well, the eye is precious, um, and it's 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 separated from a lot of the other a uh, lot of the rest of the body. Um, it's it's so important in our daily function, and and one of the reasons why it's hard to get drugs there is that it's got its own protective barriers to to protect it from disease and protect it from from I, I guess threats. And so at the moment, the best way we have to deliver drugs to the eye are, are eye drops which are really difficult to apply and people are not particularly compliant. Or for back-of-the-eye therapies, uh, they're injections. 
Uh, and, and so we know, you know, we know, we know patients <laughs> with AMD. Uh, are getting, uh, uh, macular degeneration, which is a, oh. a really big problem where you get leakiness at the back of the eye. You get breakdown of the blood vessels at the back of the eye and um, that's treated uh, with an up-to-monthly injection um, oh. of, of a product called Lucentis or Avastin or Ilea. And that's um, quite burdensome and it comes at great cost to the healthcare system as well. And so the industry is looking at ways uh, to use new technologies to deliver these drugs in a sustainable way. So perhaps a single injection might provide six months of therapy um, without the need for monthly therapy. And that's, that's the area where Polyact is focused. It's where lots of the um, ophthalmology industry is focusing on. Now tell me what Polyactiva is doing. So, so Polyactiva has got a, a novel way of joining drugs to polymers. Um, they, they, they join them like a chain, really, like a necklace. Uh, and then they, with very clever chemistry, they can control the rate of release of the drug from the polymer. But what's really unique about Polyactiva is that the polymer uh, backbone completely erodes. So once the delivery technology has delivered the drug, let's say it's over a six-month period, um, the implant itself completely erodes and disappears and it actually biodegrades into to natural products and then, it, then it's cleared from the body. So you're doing an implant of this. It's releasing over time yes. because of its design. And after it's done, the shell it came in or the backbone or however that is, the, the, the chain it has, actually is biodegradable in a sense. It just it, disappears. It just disappears. Yeah. Yep. So we're not talking about some solid implant you put in there and then after the drug is gone, you still have something in the back of your eye. No, correct. No, you don't. And that's been one of the challenges. So other technologies that have tried to tackle this have using an implant or, or a rod to release drug. They've done a good job at releasing that daily dose, but then the, the implant itself doesn't erode. And so what happens is your, your therapy's finished, the drug's been depleted, uh, and the, the clinician wants to put a second implant in, but you've already got one in there floating around. Um, then maybe you get away with the second one, but by the time you're coming up for your third therapy, you've got space junk floating around in the eye, and that can actually impede vision, um, but also create safety concerns um, for the eye itself. And so the idea of having something that completely erodes is is really important. Now, this is a delivery mechanism, if you will. It's, it means it can be used for many different kinds of drugs. Right? Yeah, I mean, the cool story about this is that the technology first came to us um, so, so this technology can be um, provided as a, a film or a gel or a rod. And they initially came to us with the concept of coding um, prostheses, so, so replacement hips or replacement knees, with a film that would release uh, an antibiotic after the knee or the hip had been inserted because obviously some people get post-operative infection and that can really impact the, the um, success rate of that replacement hip, for instance. Um, and so they came to us first with that technology, which... Um, Sounds like a really good idea. The challenge is the rate of post-operative infection is so low that the studies you'd have to run to show that you're non-inferior or superior would be, you know, tens of thousands of patients. And so then we spent time with the company thinking about, wow, but your technology is really unique. You can get zero order release, which is the same, same release every day over an extended period from a rod, a gel or a film. Where could we take that technology? And all roads kept leading to the eye. Um, and, and as they say, the rest is history because, you know, we've now... The company has now taken their product through phase one safety studies um, and, and actually has completed um, a number of cohorts in a, in a phase two study uh, where we're giving patients with a glaucoma the implant and we've shown that um, uh, the implant gives six months of therapy so they get the, the interocular pressure, which is what you're trying to lower 
with glaucoma is being therapeutically lowered, um, uh, in fact, lowered more so than you get from drug therapy, and that lasts for six months, and at the end of six months, the implants disappeared. Uh, and so that's really exciting. And, and the reason why it's exciting is, you know, glaucoma is, is one of the diseases, it's actually the second leading cause of blindness globally, um, uh, and yet 50% of patients are non-compliant with their therapy within 12 months of being diagnosed. And, and that's because one drops are difficult to take, but glaucoma is a slow, insidious disease. And so patients don't wake up each day realising that they're slightly less blind than they were the day before because they can't perceive that. And so that positive feedback that you get from some medicines isn't there with glaucoma. And so, so patients don't take their therapy. Um, and if they do take it, they don't take it particularly well. And, and so the advantage of an implant is that the clinician and the patient don't need to worry about it. It happens naturally. And then after six months, they come in and get their next injection. Um, so it's quite exciting. I have to I have to say that glaucoma is is really insidious. Now, I, with glaucoma, you know, the diagnosis is always eventually you're going to go blind. Do we have any sense that this may arrest the progress of the glaucoma, or is this simply symptomatic relief while it's being insidious? No, it's a great it's a great it. question. It's like Parkinson's disease. You know, you can't stop the course of the disease. You're just trying to prevent the side effects. No, no glaucoma is different. So, so what you're trying to treat with glaucoma is damage to the optic nerve, so at the back of the eye. Um, and the reason why you patients take drops and why we're developing an implant is that if you can lower the pressure inside the eye, you reduce the damage to the optic nerve. Um, and so, and the, the better you are, and the more compliant you are at your therapy the more you prevent the vision loss or the decline in your vision. Uh, and so theoretically, if you can get perfect treatment with, your, with an implant, for instance, then you're absolutely going to prolong the onset of blindness. Um, will you stop it? Probably not. There are, there are other approaches around trying to protect the optic nerve um, they're a long way from being from from but being the solution. But this gives a chance. <laughs> I, I do, it absolutely gives a chance. And, and more, what, one other thing that's really important here too is that even if you take your drops in a very compliant fashion, no one can take their drops at night time once you're asleep. And so, you know, what happens is that during the night, your intraocular pressure can go back up again. One of the real advantages of the implant is that you are getting steady state dosing the whole time, 24 seven. Um, and so we also think that there, there will be a therapeutic benefit to having that uh, improved uh, intraocular pressure lowering, which makes a lot of sense. Oh, we're keeping our eye on you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, Maria. Oh, well, yeah. That's why you get paid Watch the big out. bucks. <laughs> <laughs> your usual suspect, you're on your list. Hey, thank you so much for coming in, and we look forward to having you back again. Great, Morris. Good to see you again. Dr. Chris Nave is the Managing Director of Brandon Capital and Chair of Polyactiva. More information is available at polyactiva.com. That's poly, P-O-L-Y, Activa, A-C-T-I-V-A, polyactiva.com. For Tech Nation and for Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media.
I'm Paul Lancor.